0: I invite you to take your Bibles if you have one or want to reach for one and open to that passage because we're going to be looking at other verses in the vicinity of this text. Something has raised the issue of the assurance of salvation in this church to which John was writing. It runs all through the letter, this issue of whether or not the people are sure that they have been born of God or not. There are two things that I've been able to bump into in this book that would explain what has brought this issue up to the fore in this church. And let me try to point you to those two things. The first is found in chapter 2, verse 19. John refers to a group that has left the church. They have pulled out, and this departure of some significant people have caused a tremendous questioning on the part of the church. He says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might be plain that they all are not of us. Now, it's not hard, is it, to hear the struggle that John is responding to with those words. Here's what I hear. Behind those words, they were saying, John, I thought you taught us that when a person believed in Christ, they had eternal life. I thought you taught us that when Jesus calls his sheep, they hear his voice. He puts them into his hand and nobody can ever pluck them out of his hand and they're secure. What are we to make of these people who've left, John? And John's answer to their distressed question is, I haven't changed anything that I've ever taught you. The sheep are indeed eternally secure in the Father's hand. They do have eternal life. And therefore, my interpretation of what has happened in the departure of this group from the church is that they never were Of you, they never belong to the flock of the sheep in your church. If they had been of us, John said, they would have continued with us. Therefore, the sheep are eternally secure and they prove it by not leaving It's precisely because John does believe in eternal security, the eternal security of the sheep, that he has to conclude if a person forsakes the faith, they were not of us. If he didn't believe in eternal security, he would say once they were of us and now they're not of us anymore. But he can't say that. Because he believes that the sheep are secure. Once of us, always of us. Once a sheep, always a sheep. And so now the question they face is, well, John, if this can happen among professing Christians who were once a part of us, how are we going to know who's true among us? And even our own selves, how will we be sure that we are genuine in our knowledge of Christ? So the first thing that brings the problem of assurance to the front is this group that's left the church. Now, here's the second thing that has made this a front burner issue in the church. This group that has left the church has now evidently begun to prophesy and to teach false things. And what they're teaching has created the problem about assurance. Now, you can hear the pitch of this false group all over the place in 1 John. You hear it in sentences that begin with, if someone says, the one who says, if we say, let's let's look at these. Let me just carry you through. We'll, We'll go back to chapter one, start at verse six, and I'll show you. Sentences where I think you can hear an echo of the false teaching. And you try to piece it together as we go. Chapter 1, verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. Verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. Chapter 2, verse 4. He who says I know him but disobeys his commands, is a liar. Verse 6, he who says he abides in him ought to walk the same way in which he walked. Verse 9, he who says that he is in the light and hates his brother is in the darkness. And then chapter 4, verse 20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, He is a liar. Now, it's not hard, is it, to hear the false teachers behind those sentences. So we can piece together their teaching. It would go something like this, I think. They say, we have fellowship with God. We know God. We abide in Christ. We are in the light. We love God. And they say, It doesn't matter whether we walk in darkness. Because we have a standing with God that is not related to how we behave. In fact, they say we are without sin. Now, this is very puzzling. How can they say on the one hand, we're without sin. And on the other hand, it doesn't matter whether we live in sin. What? Who are these people? What is going on here? I, I got a new insight into what makes these people tick from chapter three, verse seven. Here, John comes out explicitly with a warning against what these people are teaching. He says, little children, let no one deceive you. He who does righteousness is... Righteous. Now, when he says, beware of the deception, w- what is the deception behind his correction? If you were to take that correction of his and turn it into the deception, what would it be? Here's what I think it would be. I think they're saying, we have a righteous standing with God, and it doesn't matter whether we do righteousness or not. We are righteous before God. And it doesn't matter if we do righteousness. And John comes back at him in verse 7. If you are righteous, you'll do righteousness. Now, I think we begin to see what is making these people tick. I think they know the doctrine of justification by faith from the Apostle Paul. They have heard the doctrine that teaches in Romans and Galatians through faith in Christ. Though you're imperfect, you can be acquitted from all your sins, justified, stood before God in righteousness in Jesus Christ. Faultless before the throne in Christ. But you know what people did in the early church with Paul's teaching they twisted it all out of shape. For example, some said, let us do evil that good may come. And Paul attacks that false teaching in Romans 3, 8. Some said, let us sin that grace may abound. And Paul attacks that distortion in Romans 6, 1. Some said, faith can justify a person whether that faith gives rise to good works or not. And James responds with his letter Chapter two, what does it profit a man, brethren, if a man says he has faith but has not works? Can his faith save him? No way, Jose. The distortion of the Pauline doctrine of justification by faith is being countered again and again and again. And here in first John, some of them who had heard this teaching say, Ooh, that's a nice teaching. I like that. And distorted it to mean. You can be righteous, even if you don't do righteousness. To which John writes his whole letter, especially chapter 3, verse 7. Let no one deceive you. He who does righteousness is righteous. Nobody else is righteous. Now, let me clarify. Clarify lest you run off and distort what Piper says. He does not say that you become righteous by virtue of doing righteousness. He says, people who have a righteous standing with God, who are righteous in Christ, do righteousness. If they say they have a standing in God as righteous and they live in unrighteousness, they lie. So the second reason why the issue of assurance is forced to the surface is that the false teachers are giving false assurance. They are teaching falsehood about assurance. And so John has to deal with the issue. And he takes it up in chapter 2, verses 3, 4, 5, and 6. That's our text for the morning. Let me try to show you how I think it's structured in three stages. Three stages to the argument. The first stage of the argument, which is given in verses 4 and 5, is the foundation. And it basically says this. There is a necessary correlation between knowing Christ and... And obeying Christ. A necessary result of knowing Christ is obeying Christ. He says, he who says, I know him, but disobeys his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly love for God is perfected. So the foundational fact of this argument is people who know Christ obey Christ. Second stage in the argument, therefore, the way to have assurance that you know Christ is to obey him. Assurance comes through obedience. Verse three, by this, we may be sure that we know him if we keep his commandments. Verse five at the end says, by this, we may be sure that we are in him him this is assurance of salvation in him and then the third level of the argument is it follows that if it's necessary that knowing Christ gives rise to obedience and obedience is the pathway to assurance therefore as verse 6 says you ought to live like Jesus the ought the duty level comes in verse 6 he who says he abides in him, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So the argument is built on a firm theological fact. Knowing Christ must result in obedience to Christ. Second level, therefore, assurance comes through obedience. Therefore, third level, obey, be like Jesus. Very simple, nothing complicated about this argument. Let's look at it one piece at a time now. we'll spend almost all of our time on level one. Foundations are usually the most important thing. And then briefly, levels two and three. First, verses four and five. He who says, I know him, but disobeys his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly love for God is perfected. I have two questions to pose to the apostle here. One, what do you mean, John, by knowing God or knowing Christ? And then, second, how, John, does knowing Christ necessarily result in obedience? I don't get the necessary connection. First, what is this knowing of Christ? The reason I used Christ as you're reading in your Bible and it says Him can know that you know him or the one who says, I know him. The last person mentioned in verse 2 was Christ, and that's why I'm assuming him refers back to Christ. But if it refers to God, no problem, because there are other texts in 1 John that talk about knowing God. In John's way of thinking, you can't know God without knowing his son. You can't know his son without coming to know God. So I don't want to get hung up on whether the him there refers to Christ or God. I think both. But now, what kind of knowing is meant here that necessarily produces obedience? It must be a very powerful thing. It so certainly produces obedience that you can call people liars who say they know God and don't obey him. I mean, that's powerful stuff that must be behind this word, know Christ. Judas knew Christ, and he didn't do anything right at the end. Well, So it must not be that kind of knowing. A lot of scholars today who are unbelievers, who know more about Christ than most of us. So it's not that that he's talking about. It doesn't produce anything. Let me do this. Let me start at the widest circumference of the biblical context and walk right into verse 4. Okay, we'll start back at Hosea. You don't need to look these up because I'll go too quickly. In Hosea chapter 4, it says, verse 1, There is no faithfulness, no kindness, no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, killing, stealing, committing adultery. Now, isn't that interesting? He has exactly the same view that John does. There can't be knowledge of God in the land because there's so much stealing, killing. Lying adultery, they cannot go together then Jesus in matthew eleven twenty seven gives us a deep insight into the kind of knowledge I think he 's talking about here. Jesus says, All things have been delivered to me by my Father. no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him so clearly there is a knowing of God the Father and a knowing of the Son which is a gift of God and is not got just by reading the Bible or by learning facts more importantly than any of these two texts is right in our own book chapter 4 verse 6 you might want to look at this one of first John Here, John says, We are of God. Whoever knows God listens to us, but he who does not... And then you would have expected him to say, No, God does not listen to us, but he didn't. He shifts terms, and whenever he does that, he helps us understand what his terms mean by substituting different explanatory terms. So it reads like this. We are of God. Whoever knows God listens to us. He who does not Or is not of God, does not listen to us. And so the conclusion you draw from that verse is knowing God means being of God. That is belonging to God, being of his character, of his nature, born of him, belonging to him. So knowing God means something very deep. If a soldier, for example, comes back from fighting in Vietnam, say, 10, 15 years ago. And uh, he says to the civilians who stayed behind, you don't know what war is like. What does he mean? He means there are kinds of knowing that, that have to be experienced in order to have. Something has to go into you, has to hit you hard, or you, it's just words. And I think that's the kind of knowing he means here. Something that isn't just on the surface that goes in. And I get that from the immediate context in verse 4 of 1 John 2. You notice? He doesn't know God. And it says the truth is not where? In him. That's what it means to know and yet not to know. Your knowledge of God is all around you. It's in your head. It's in your traditions. It's in your forms. It's in your family. It's in your books. You carry it under your arms. You can quote it with your lips, but it isn't in you. The truth isn't in you. It hasn't hit like war when you're in it. And so I think what he means by knowing God in verse four is that kind of experiential Impact that you have when a reality bursts in your heart and makes itself felt and known at a level that changes you. So now the second question I have is, how does knowing God like this necessarily result in obedience? Because that's the assumption. John's whole case hangs on the certainty that knowing God produces obedience. Now, I'm not sure that's clear to everybody, so let me try to get it real clear out of verse 4. If a person could know God and still live in disobedience, then he couldn't call this guy a liar. How does he know he's a liar? How can you know this guy's a liar... If, in fact, sometimes knowing God produces obedience, sometimes knowing God doesn't produce obedience. And along comes a guy and says, I know God, and he disobeys, you can't draw any conclusions. But John drew a conclusion. He's a liar. The only way John can conclude he's a liar is if a necessary connection exists between knowing Christ and obeying Christ. So how does this knowing guarantee obedience? The key verse for me in explaining this is chapter 4, verse 16, which you might want to look at. Chapter 4, verse 16. It says, so we know and believe. And I would substitute the word trust there because that's what Believe in biblical language means we know and believe the love or trust the love God has for us. God is love. Now, notice the two words that he puts together. We know and trust the love of God. To know the love God has for you means you're going to trust it. John can't imagine anybody knowing the love of God and not Trusting the love of God. All John can say to somebody who refuses to entrust himself to the love of God is. You don't know him. If you knew him, you would trust him. Now, bring in this idea of commandments here. So when God commands you to do something. And you ignore the commandment. Or you go against the commandment. All John knows to say is, you treat God as though he's not a God of love. So you must not know him. Here's the way it works. When somebody tells you to do something and you don't do it, why don't you do it? Here's the reason you don't do it. Because if you, you think you'll be happier if you don't do it, right? That's the only reason people disobey God. Because when a commandment comes, they look at the commandment and what it involves... And then they look at disobedience and what it involves, and they say, this is going to be better. I'll be happier if I get out of this marriage. I'll be happier if I get money by lying on my tax returns. I'll be happier if I don't take time to teach my children and watch TV instead. And when you say that to God, you say, in effect, you don't love me. Because if you love me, you wouldn't tell me to do these things that are going to make me so unhappy. You see how knowing God as a God of love necessarily results in obeying God? If He loves you, and He's all-wise and all-powerful, and He tells you to do something, you can't get happier disobeying. You can't get happier disobeying. He's for you. That's what love means. So when you say... I'm going to disobey God. You say, in effect, he's not a God of love and John says to you, you don't know him. If you knew him, you'd trust him and if you trusted him, you'd obey him because you know every commandment is a doctor's prescription to get you well. Every commandment is a piece of a map to get you out of the jungle of this life to the beach where there's a yacht ready to take you on an island cruise. If you believed God that he is a God of love, you'd obey him. Now, just think about your disobedient acts. Isn't that the case? A lot of people in this room planning to disobey God this week. And I don't think there's one exception to the rule that your plan is based on your assumption that you'll be happier if you go that route, which means you don't know God. Very plain, easy enough for a child to understand. And isn't it Ironic that today people say, if you know the love of God for you, you don't have to worry about going on in sin. And John says, if you know the love of God for you, you can't go on in sin. We are miles away from the apostolic teaching on faith and works. Today in the evangelical church, this book is an uncannily relevant book for our situation. So the answer to our second question is that the way knowing God necessarily produces obedience is that the God we know is a God of love. And when a God of love gives you commandments, they are for your good. And when you reject them, you are saying, he's not for me. I can get happier by disobeying. And therefore, you don't know him as a God of love. It's those of you who were here last Sunday night will remember the parable of the pounds. And the master gives pounds to 10 people, says trade with these till I come. And then he goes on a long journey. And they all trade and make a lot of money, except one guy. He wraps it up in a napkin, disobeys the command. The master comes back and says, why'd you do that? And you remember the answer? I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. That's the reason everybody disobeys God. We think his commands are severe. He's an exploiter. He's not for us. His ways will not produce happiness. And so we choose another way. We don't know him. We don't believe him. Which leads now then to the second level of our argument. The first level or the first stage is the foundation that there is a necessary connection between knowing Christ or God and obeying Christ. You cannot say that you know him if you disobey him. Second level. It follows as the night, the day that therefore assurance is had through obedience. Verse 3, by this we may be sure, we may have assurance that we know him if we keep his commandments. There is a sweet, sweet confidence that comes into the life of a person Who is submissive to the will of God and pursues obedience rather than being recalcitrant and rebellious and resistant to the Bible and seeking your own private way. The professing Christian who neither meditates on the law of God nor keeps the law of God will live in turmoil of uncertainty or. He will invent a theology to give him assurance in his sin, just like the false prophets did in John's day and like a whole movement of evangelical theology has done today. John writes this letter to overcome this uncertainty in the people's lives about their assurance of salvation, and he comes at it from two sides. We saw it last week. We'll see it again and again. The first way he comes at it is by saying none of us is without sin. We have an advocate with the Father. He pleads his propitiation, not our perfection. Don't despair. And then he comes at it from the other side and says, if you walk in the light, you have the cleansing of Jesus. Do not sin. That's why I write to you. Walk as Jesus walked. If you say you have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, you're a liar. If you say you know him while you disobey his commandments, you're a liar. That's the second way he comes at it. So he's not teaching perfection. He's teaching a radical change of life. That obedience is imperative to give evidence of salvation. You see, for John, unlike so many, many people today, salvation is a real work of God in the heart, not just A standing in heaven. So many people have taken the doctrine of justification by faith and said that when you perform an act of faith, you are given a standing in heaven and you can live like the devil down here and it doesn't affect your standing. You can't find that anywhere in the New Testament, least of all in the epistle of first John. Salvation is a mighty work of God by the Holy Spirit taking out a heart of stone, putting in a heart of flesh, writing the law on our hearts, causing us to walk in His statutes, bringing us to glory. It is a mighty work of God. It is not a game. It is not a polite fiction. And oh, the deception that has gone on in the church for so long to the effect that some little prayer you prayed way back when gets you to glory without any relevance to what you do in your life. I can't imagine how so many have fallen for it if they read their Bible. The final stage of the argument is that since there is a necessary connection between knowing Christ and obeying Christ, and since assurance is had through obedience, third level, verse 6, Those who claim to be in Christ should walk the way Jesus walked. Here is the level of duty, the level of oughtness. Now, I want you to grasp here in closing a fundamental structure of biblical theology relating to ought kinds of statements in the Bible and is kinds of statements in the Bible. Here's an example from John. In John 15:5 Jesus said, "I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me bears much fruit." That's fact. Then in verse 12, he says, "This is the commandment that I give you, go bear fruit." Now, there's the key to biblical theology. Is is the basis of ought. And that's right here in our text. Verse four is a massive theological statement of isness. Those who know Christ do obey fact. Power of God at work in our lives. Therefore. Obey. Obey. The command comes on the basis of the is statement. There's a great saying from Augustine that I'd like to close with. Before I do that, let me give you another one from Paul. You know, you've all quoted Philippians 2. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For It is God who is at work in you to will and to do his good pleasure. If you ever get those reversed, you become a legalist. The beautiful structure of biblical theology guards us from legalism by which we would say, oh, i got to get to work now to earn my way into the love of God. It's just reversed. I have to open my eyes to see the love of God for me in Christ that I might have the wherewithal to obey. And therefore, we're guarded against legalism. Here's the way Augustine put it. With this, I close. If you haven't read the confessions of Augustine, read them. They are a great Christian classic. O oh, love that ever burnest and art never quenched. O oh, charity, my God, enkindle me. Thou commandest continence. Grant what thou commandest and command what Thou wilt. Shall we pray? Almighty God, my deep prayer for myself and this people who've heard Your Word this morning is that it might work in us to open our eyes to what it means to be loved by an all-wise, omnipotent God. And that knowing You as a God of love toward us, we will not see your commandments as burdensome or exploiting, but as pathways to the shore and the yacht and the cruise of glory. And that through obedience, you might fill us with strong assurance and that in assurance, you might make us bold To bear witness to those who need to hear the gospel of the power of God in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.